morning's reading is John 3, verses 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it, was, it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Thank you, Laura. On uh, Friday night, January the 13th, uh, Ron and Helen and Brandon and I went out to Hidden Acres Camp to prepare for our Elevation Retreat. We put together those lovely breakfast casseroles that you, uh, that you all enjoyed. And uh, after we were done our evening's work, uh, we decided that we would play a game called Ego. Now, ego is an interesting game because it's where you test your self-awareness and your self-understanding against the perceptions of those people around you who know you. And uh, one facet of the game is where uh, the uh, three random cards are flipped over to describe three character traits that, that may or may not be present in your life. Things like congenial, uh, introspective, generous. Uh, and the players around the table, including yourself, they rank what you are, least to most, or most to least. You could be most congenial and least introspective, for instance. Well, when it came to my turn, this is what I got. I got gullible, irresponsible, and manipulative. <laughs> How do I win? Like, I'm most like one of these things and least like one of these things. And the bottom line is, the verdict was, is that I'm most gullible, and least manipulative, which means I'll believe anything you tell me and I'll never use it against you for my benefit. <laughs> Actually, today, as we begin our Lenten series, A Season of Seeking, we're talking about belief. We're talking about uh, uh, how to let go of barriers, roadblocks that might uh, in hinder or prevent us from believing what, uh, what God has for us in our lifetime. Our Lenten season is called A Season of Seeking. That's our theme as we, as we go through these 
uh, next week's up until Easter Sunday on April the 1st. And during this season, we're seeking a deeper understanding uh, and a lived-out experience of our relationship with God, our place in His kingdom. And uh, we're looking to do that on, in, on an individual and on a collective basis. And we're addressing roadblocks that we encounter that hinder both our understanding and our experience, and that, that, uh, uh, that even perhaps prevent or prohibit us from going deeper and understanding the fullness of that. And today, uh, I'm addressing mental roadblocks to faith. These roadblocks exist on a, a continuum of certainty, I'll call it. And there are two poles in this spectrum. On the far left is the pole that I would call the godless one. This is the pole that says, you cannot know God. It's inconceivable. It's actually uh, absurd that God exists and intervenes in history. And, and this, this was actually uh, a phenomenon that has been about since about 19, uh, 1882 when Nietzsche declared that God is dead. And that began a movement that said there's no need for deity in the divine. The world is completely uh, understandable and because there now exists legitimate forms of knowledge about the, inter about the natural world and that we no longer need the myth and the superstition of the Bible and the church. This is the extreme left of this, of, of this godless versus godly spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is what I would call the godly end, where it, this says that we can completely know God. God is completely definable and explainable, and God always acts in particular ways. And when understood, then we will live in the right way as well. Traditionally, faith has been founded on uh, these uh, correct ways of thinking about God, correct ways about thinking about the world, the state of humanity, this present evil time, and some glorious future eternity. The rationale is that we need to align our faith with certain correct ideas in order to have healthy faith. And when we do, then we're able to say, I know that I know that I know the truth, in quotation marks. For decades, even centuries, the church and Christians have been faithful to this approach to God. Well, today, I want to focus on uh, this right roadblock, this godly roadblock. Why? Well, first of all, because when we think that God is completely knowable, that he has this certainty about his interaction with the world and, and he's totally predictable, it limits God to our, intellectual, to our own intellectual capacity. It's actually a form of idolatry. The pattern of thinking sells God short by keeping the Creator captive to what we are able to comprehend which is the very same problem the Israelites had when they were tempted to make images of God, also known as idols, out of stone, metal, or wood. See, nowadays we don't fashion physical idols. We create boxes for God to fit into, boxes that contain and control Him to, to what we can comprehend and to what we can hold. I have a friend who's a singer-songwriter in California, Bob Kilpatrick, and back in the 90s he wrote this song called Boxes. And the lyric basically goes, you can have a big box, you can have a small box, but if your God fits in a box, your God is way too small. You can have a tall box, you can have a deep box, but if your God is in a box, then he's no God at all. 
So it limits gods to, to our own intellectual capacity. Secondly, I want to address it because we feel great tension when our experience doesn't fit into one of these god boxes. And, the, and, we, and we are rattled by doubt and questions when trauma falls on us from time to time. And maybe you know this. When family breakdown occurs or when there's a, a disappointment or when the abandonment by a child, a chronic or sudden illness, or the loss of a loved one, and, and so much more. Peter N. says that a faith that promises to provide firm answers and relieves our doubts is a path that will not hold up to the challenges and the tragedies of life. Eileen and I can testify to that. Because in our household, we've had times of, of painful challenge that have uh, caused us to grapple with our, quest, our, our, our concepts of God and have caused us to question that, that is God good all the time? Is He just? And is He present? And it's been deep, sorrowful, mourning, groaning as we've had to uh, challenge our preconceptions and, and reconcile our reality with what we have believed. Thirdly, I want to talk about this certainty of, of God being completely knowable because we are living in a time when long-standing traditional understandings of God's action in the world are continually being examined, reconsidered, and refined, if not completely redefined. It's a challenging time, but it need not be a defeating time for us. Which brings us to our text today. This is where a, a story of Jesus challenging uh, Nicodemus to reconsider a faith founded on what he knows and to center his faith on something different. Here's the, here's the way the story goes. Jesus is in, is in Jerusalem. And in John chapter 2, the end of the chapter, it says that uh, people are beginning to believe in him because of the miraculous signs that he is performing. And even though in John we only see the uh, water being turned into wine, a miracle that occurred in Galilee, there are obviously other unreported miracles in Jerusalem that are drawing people to, uh, their, to Jesus and to put their attention on him. And Nicodemus is one of those people, and so he comes to Jesus at night to investigate further by interviewing him. He's one of those who is certain in his beliefs. He's educated. Nicodemus is steeped in Jewish tradition. He's in the upper class of society and conservative. He's a Pharisee, and Pharisees were very strict in their belief and practice. And he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, so he would have been very sensitive to the religious life happening around him at that time. And he has... He and, he and Jesus have this strange conversation. It's full of metaphor uh, and some eclectic talk, a nuance, and it sounds like they're actually talking past each other. But in this conversation, they really do understand each other, and they, and they come to this deep, meaningful conversation. And Nicodemus opens the conversation with uh, this very straightforward statement that is founded in his certainty of his belief. He says, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, Nicodemus is very complimentary. He's, uh, he's uh, able to express interest in these miraculous signs, uh, and these signs feed his certainty because they're concrete evidence, if you will, that, that Jesus has been sent by God. 
As a Pharisee, he would be a student of Israel's history and of the prophetic scriptures. And so he'd have a very firm idea, clearly defined idea, of what Israel's future would entail and how God would bring it about. And as a, as a member of the Sanhedrin, he's likely aware that John the Baptist was going about the countryside preaching to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and also saying that there's one coming after me that, who's more powerful than I. And Nicodemus probably put these two together, and, and the unspoken question behind his statement is this, you have these miraculous signs, God is obviously with you, why did God send you? Are you here to initiate God's kingdom? Will you fulfill the expectations for the future that I have, that I believe uh, are, are right? And this is, these questions in, in this statement is rooted in a very clear, uh, defined, certain understanding and expectation of God's action in history. But also in, I think, a deep-felt need for peace and for justice for his people, the Jews. Jesus' reply is, is very cryptic and abrupt. He says, truthfully, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven. No one, can, no one can see God's kingdom unless they're born again. He didn't say, well, thank you very much. I try to do my best. Surely, I'm telling you the truth. No one can see God's kingdom unless they're born again. And Nicodemus is challenged. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, as you currently are, Nicodemus, you cannot even perceive what God's kingdom is like, let alone receive it as, as it really is. And in order to do so, there must be a total renewal of your life, inside and out, like being born again. Born again, <laughs> that phrase. Maybe that phrase holds uh, certain preconceptions for you, like red-faced raging preachers pointing their fingers and screaming, you must be saved. And crowds of people uh, streaming down aisles to the sounds of uh, just as I am, coming to ask Jesus into their heart. I actually can't find a lot of fault in, in that portrayal because as a young man uh, of seven years old, I actually responded to an altar call in a tent meeting with a sawdust floor and I was the one who said, yes, I want to be born again. And despite that term's misuse and manipulation, there is truth to it. In fact, Jesus says being a born again is necessary to be a participant in his kingdom. Sean Castleberry says this, the terminology of being born again, which is often associated with fundamentalist Christianity, has lost much of its radical implications. It goes beyond small tweaks or surface-level changes. It's a dramatic and foundational realignment. Being born again is more than asking Jesus into our hearts. It's asking Jesus to topple everything that stands against his kingdom of peace and justice. To be truly, to be truly born again is to be born of love. The Greek word translated born again, the Greek word anathen, really has three Meanings. It can be interpreted three different ways. It can mean to be born again, or to be born anew, or to be born from above. And Jesus, it's this, this, there's this play on words that Jesus is saying, in order to even perceive what is of God, to truly know and experience God's purpose and intent for the world, one must begin completely anew by being born from above. 
by the Spirit of God receiving a new heavenly perspective and a new heavenly power that comes from the gift of spiritual transformation. And Nicodemus' response is a natural response. He says, how? How can this be? Now, I don't know if I was Nicodemus, if that would have been the question I would have had. I probably would have asked, why? Why do I have to do this? But Nicodemus asks, how? How how can a man be born again? Surely he can't return to his mother's womb to be born. Now, he's an intelligent man. He knows that Jesus isn't talking about some biological process. And he's asking, really, to Jesus, he's asking, how can a life that is set in order, an old life that has beliefs, structures, habits, how can a life like that be reoriented so as to start all over again, to start anew? That's a good question. I mean, if you've ever tried to change a habit in your life, you know that it's hard to change what's ingrained. They say that if you want to start a new habit, you just repeat it for 21 days and it'll become part of your life. But to break something that is habitual, instinctive, second nature, that's difficult. And uh, our lives are, are more than just the habits. Our lives are complex collections and compilations of belief, of behavior, of desire, and so much more. And Nicodemus' question is right. How can I start anew? And Jesus begins to provide some explanation of this phenomenon that is really beyond explanation. And this is where Nicodemus is being challenged to break down his mental roadblocks of certainty and to begin to embrace the mystery of God's work in a person. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And what Jesus is saying here is is that there are two aspects to this new birth. It's a matter of repenting and receiving. To be born of waters is, is probably a reference to John the Baptist's water of repentance. John came baptizing, saying, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near. And repentance is where people come to in sincerity before God and say, I want to live differently. And then they're born of the Spirit, where God acts through His Holy Spirit to renew life, to be powerfully ever-present in that life. To be born again into God's kingdom requires deep interchange. It doesn't come as the right of any particular race. It's not, it's not the uh, sole purview of the, of the nation of Israel or the Jewish family. It's not the right of any particular race or culture or sect, nor is it hereditary, nor is it merited by any act or mental assent. It's only given by the direct act of God. You're not born again when you can check all the boxes on the test when you can repeat the right statements, and when you can agree to the right set of beliefs. Jesus expands further, saying, it's a mystery of how this works. It's like the wind. And he draws on this analogy of the wind because it's it's really a great picture of this supernatural work of God in a person. And it's also a play on words. Because in the original language of John, the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same word, pneuma. And he says, you, you know the wind. You, you can't see where it goes, but you can feel its effect. And what he's saying, to, he's, he's challenging Nicodemus, like the Spirit of God, it goes wherever it wants. And you can't see what's happening. You can't explain what's happening, 
but you know something is happening. The origin and the destination of the wind are unknown for the one who feels it and acknowledges its reality. Just so, the new life of one born of the Spirit is unexplainably is unexplainable by ordinary reasoning, and its outcome is unpredictable, though its actuality is undeniable. Well, rightfully, Nicodemus continues to grapple with this. This is messing up with his own mental God boxes. And so he asks again, how can this be? Now, it's an honest question. I don't think he's challenging Jesus to say, prove it, but he's, he's seeking to mentally get his mind around this concept of being born of water and born of the Spirit. And this is important for us to realize. We're never asked, God never asks us to check our brains at the door when we come to him. We're not asked to be limited by them, however. When we come to God, he's not saying, just follow me blindly, mindlessly. He gave us brains for a reason to think. But he was asking us to not be limited by the brains and to think beyond what we can conceive of. You see, God's not put off by our questions. He welcomes them. He's not put off by our reasoning or even our doubts. You might know the story in the scriptures after Christ was resurrected and revealed himself to his disciples. One of his followers, his close followers, Thomas, refused to believe that Jesus had come from the dead. And he said, the only way I'm going to believe that Jesus is alive now is if I can actually touch the wounds from the cross, the holes in his hands and the spear wound in his side. And when Jesus came to him with great compassion and understanding, he offered his hands to Thomas and said, Quell your doubts. See that I'm real. And Nicodemus received the answer that he was seeking for as well. The point is this, is that God will meet us where we're at, and he'll help us to bring us to where we ought to be. And I want to point out that elevation, this community of faith, certainly does not ask, does not ask anyone to be mindless either. In fact, one of our key strategic commitments here is that we're here to create a culture of thoughtful spiritual engagement. And I think you can see that we are being thoughtful, particularly uh, in our recent engagement around this issue of sexuality in the church. But I want to point out that the key priority focus is spiritual engagement. Encountering that which is mystery, those things that are perceived, but unseen and intangible. George Wiggle says this, faith without reason risks descending into superstition, but reason without faith builds a world without windows, doors, or skylights. And so Jesus challenges Nicodemus to see beyond his own current understanding, to open the windows and the doors of his own mind to seek more. He says, you are Israel's teacher, in fact, if you go to the original language, it's, it's even more adamant that he says, to, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, you are the teacher of Israel. You're the authority, Nicodemus, and yet you don't understand these things. Stretch, Nicodemus, stretch, think, go beyond yourself, open your heart up, not just your mind. If you don't comprehend the easy things, the earthly things I teach, then you won't grasp the harder, heavenly things that require faith. These are mysteries to you, but I, I know these things firsthand, Jesus said. Frederick Buechner writes, 
that faith is a way of looking at what is seen and understanding it in a new sense. Faith is a way of looking at what there is to be seen in the world and in ourselves and hoping, trusting, believing all evidence to the contrary that beneath the surface we see, there is a vastly more than we cannot see. And so to help Nicodemus see this vastly more, he draws on Nicodemus' uh, understanding of Jewish history by referring to Moses in the wilderness and the brass snake. During the Exodus, and the nation of Israel was in the desert, there came a time when the, when the uh, nation of Israel was complaining against God, and, and their camp was infested by venomous snakes. And these snakes were biting people, and people were dying. God went, Moses went to God, and, 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 was, and God instructed Moses to make a fashion, a, a snake out of brass, and to put it on a pole, and to hold it up. And if people would just look at the snake in faith, and believing that God would rescue them, they would have their lives saved. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that whoever would believe would have eternal life. And what, the parallel is that whoever would believe in Jesus in faith would receive this life, would receive life that was everlasting from God himself. And this is the crux of the situation for Nicodemus. Faith is about who? more than it's about what. Peter N. says this, as it's used in the Bible, believing doesn't focus on what someone believes in, but in whom one places his or her trust, namely God. And this is Jesus' point to Nicodemus. At its core, the kingdom of God is not found in a theological or a social construct. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if that kingdom is to be seen today, then individuals must be born again by the Spirit of God, infused by the presence of Jesus himself, in order to manifest his presence in the world in attitude, in word, in an action. See, only believing in the power of miracles like Nicodemus did is insufficient for new life. Those signs that Jesus created were simply signs Uh, that pointed to the one who has the power to transcend nature, God himself in Jesus Christ. And belief only in mental boxes that keep God in neat and tidy, completely explainable uh, fashions prevents one from embracing the faith, uh, the mystery of the spiritual transformation that God has for us. You see, it's the spirit that is the substance of the kingdom of God. Believing in Jesus, who is the Savior, and putting your faith in Him brings life that is born in you by God's Spirit. That belief is a matter of trust. We trust God to renew us. Peter Enns continues to write, he says, if we replace the words belief or believe with the word trust, we'll be closer to what the Bible is getting at, and we may be surprised and encouraged by what we see. You see, the vision of God for his kingdom and the ministry of the church is not to make good, thoughtful people into better people. That's not what we're about. If you want to be about that, there are lots of great places where you can engage in self-improvement. 
No, the vision of the kingdom of God is to transform flawed but willing people into whole and ready people. That's what being a born again or being born from above accomplishes. It's a fundamental change of our destiny and our nature. In the world today, we see lots of cry for justice and peace. It comes to the hashtags of Me Too or Black Lives Matter. It's heard in the outcry just recently in Canada around uh, the lack of representation by Indigenous people in juries where, where, uh, where white people, white men, get let off for killing Indigenous men. We hear those cries, and it's right to rise up and to be active in those things. But I would like to tell you this, is, is, is those things are, are, are good, and they will accomplish some things, but in the end, they're Band-Aids on cancer. If this world is going to change, there needs to be a fundamental change in the hearts and the lives and the destinies of humanity. And until people come in touch with what God intended for them from the beginning of time, these injustices will continue to roll. And it's people who know this life that is truly life, who speak and act and advocate. We're the ones who will help bring the change that's necessary as people give their lives to this new life in God. Well, in conclusion, why would anybody believe in Jesus and put their trust in him seeking to be transformed? Well, because Jesus is love incarnate, and true love is trustworthy. Sherry Harder says that faith is tied to love in a way that logical deduction and reason are not. We are changed by what we love more than what we think. And so after this interaction, after John recounts this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, he gives some summary statements. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he continues in 3 verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. See, God has reached out to us individually and collectively in love to renew our lives and to restore in us the wholeness of being that he intended for us from the beginning of time. And without that wholeness, without that wholeness that comes by being renewed from above, we are not living as the true humanity that God created. Rather, we are perishing because we are missing the purpose for which God created us. God's desire is that we would live unhindered in relationship with him by trusting Jesus, a relationship that releases his love, his peace, and his justice in us and through us. Pete Weiner says, what God is seeking is not our intellectual assent so much as a relationship with us. That is, after all, one of the purposes of the incarnation of God in Jesus. As we always do, we are going to go to the gym and, and uh, have some discussion around tables. I've actually reserved a table for myself today. And if you go in the gym and you go to the far left corner, there's a table. I'm going to sit there, and, if, and I want to talk to whoever wants to talk about this, this phrase, born again. I'm sure there are questions. I'm sure there are rebuttals. But I'd love to have that conversation with you. And, and the rest of you can gather on the tables. There are questions there provided for you. 
And one of the key questions of today's uh, discussion is about seeking. And during this Lenten season, this season of seeking, we want you to grapple with what are you seeking in your life and what can God grant to you at this particular time in 2018? Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll, pass, or we'll make our way out of, the, out of the doors here and down through the lobby into the gym. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for uh, the recounting of stories like this one that show that uh, you, are, uh, you are approachable and, uh, and you are understandable, but life in you also, also is mysterious and inexplicable and, and supernatural. Help us to open our hearts and our lives up to see you, to see your life, to see what you have for us so that we can live for your glory and for the good of this world. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, folks. We'll see you in the gym.